Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that roams through the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we look at new stories, including road safety measures for Victoria to be fast-tracked after an horrific 24 hours on the road. We chat with media personality Jonathan Coleman about the twists and turns of his motoring career. We talk about the prevalence of SUVs, particularly in the luxury car class, and road test the Lexus RX350. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith and Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including Nissan is using an anthropologist to influence autonomous vehicle design. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear longer versions of the segments in this program by going to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program from iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to start the program, let's have the news. With production of the Ford Falcon XR8 coming to an end, and production of the Holden Commodore SS set to end next year, the New South Wales Police Force is looking for replacement highway patrol vehicles. Despite running into several hurdles, the New South Wales Police hasn't given up on securing the Ford Mustang GT as a possible replacement. It has been reported that calibration issues with the V8-powered Mustang's gearbox temperature sensors prevented the car from completing a crucial set of rigorous braking tests. Other cars that have previously been tested or are under consideration include the Chrysler 300C, the Volvo S60 and the Mercedes-AMG C63. The Australian Automobile Association has done some calculation and reports that households are having to spend too much on transport. In breathless terms, the AAA announces that Australian households are now spending a, quote, staggering 13.3% of their weekly budget on transport, which represents up to $22,000 a year just to keep their cars on the road as tollways, insurance and other costs continue to rise and congestion worsens. But the AAA's Transport Affordability Index isn't based on surveys of thousands of Australians. It assumes a single hypothetical household comprising a man and woman with dependent children. It's specified they live in a detached house in the middle to outer suburb with good access to public transport. If the expenditure is 13.3% of the weekly budget, then it has in fact come down compared to some other measures taken a few years ago. Recently, five people were killed on Victorian roads in a 24-hour period, which has prompted the fast-tracking of new road safety initiatives. Three motorcyclists died and two drivers were killed in five separate accidents over a 24-hour period. Of particular concern is the motorcycle road toll in Victoria, which is already twice that of 2015. Several months ago, female comedian George McEncrow started raising money for Mum's Taxi, a ride-sharing app where only women are drivers and only women and children are passengers. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has now come out in support of this service, which is known as Shabar. The ABC reported that there has been some criticism of this service. Equally, there's been a wide range of anecdotes of women who have been subjected to inappropriate experiences in taxis and ride-sharing vehicles. A new ride-hailing app made exclusively for women has been launched in Boston, 
and will now launch across the United States after being met with overwhelming demand from users. Governments around the world have shown a great keenness to get on the autonomous vehicle bandwagon. But another transport revolution could come from using drones. Amazon has announced a partnership with the UK government to explore steps needed to make the delivery of parcels by small drones a reality. A cross-government team, including the UK Civil Aviation Authority, has provided Amazon with permission to explore three key innovations. Beyond line-of-sight operations in rural and suburban areas, testing sensor performance to make sure drones can identify and avoid obstacles, and flights where one person operates multiple highly automated drones. Governments around the world have shown a great keenness to get on the autonomous vehicle bandwagon, but another transport revolution could come from using drones, especially for small freight tasks. Amazon has announced a partnership with the UK government to explore the steps needed to make the delivery of parcels by small drones a reality, allowing Amazon to trial new methods of testing its delivery systems. A cross-government team supported by the UK Civil Aviation Authority has provided Amazon with permission to explore three key innovations beyond line-of-sight operations in rural and suburban areas, testing Peak hour bus commuters in Sydney now have the option to see how full their bus is before it arrives, giving the option to either jump on or wait for the next service. Opal Data will give real-time information to mobile devices, giving more timely information and choice for customers. The government says that the new functionality is a direct result of the Future Transport program launched in April, with more transport apps including TripView, MetroRove, Arrivo and TripGo expected to access the data to provide additional information for their users in future updates. A study by rail experts in the UK has concluded that railway crossing safety could be improved by networks of tiny wireless sensors attached to the tracks. Research at the University of Huddlesfield's Institute of Railway Research has established that the sensors could be powered by vibrations from approaching trains. Conventional railway crossing detection systems cost up to $800,000 with high operating costs but a wireless sensor detection system could be installed for less than $35,000 and would be self-powered by train vibrations. And that has been the news. Jonathan Coleman is a radio announcer, television personality, writer and performer. His television broadcasting career started in the late 1970s as a reporter on Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. He's been in movies, television and a lot of radio, including over a decade and a half in the UK. He now appears regularly on television station Channel 10 in Australia, but his love of radio continues with a program each Monday afternoon on Community Radio Station 99.3 FM in Sydney, and you can hear this on the internet. Just put 99.3 in your search engine. His motoring career has had its twists and turns, including meeting some famous car people. Let's talk to him about this and other things. Jono, thanks very much for your time. 
My pleasure, David. And uh, uh, yes, my, my motoring career has had a, uh, many twists and winds along the way. Now, you have in fact met the three amigos of motoring, the Top Gear Boys or ex-Top Gear Boys now. Yes. Uh, was that an education to you? It's always an education, meeting Jeremy Clarkson and uh, or James May and uh, Richard, um, uh, because they have a fantastic chemistry between them. I've had dealings with them all, and then when they first came over to Australia, to do that first Top Gear Live, I was asked to MC the press conference. Clarkson kept running upstairs to go and have a cigarette up on the roof. And he said, <laughs> I'll, I'll get these guys wound up because there was quite a few British journos and stringers there as well. So he, uh, he slagged off Gordon Brown, who was the um, prime minister at the time and said, you know, what a boring old Scotsman he was and tied as most Scots. And, uh, you know, he called him a Google-eyed something or other and, you know, about speed cameras and proliferation of speed cameras on the, the take all the fun out of driving in the UK. And that got press all over the UK, of course, and a lot of press here with, you know, Clarkson slags off British PM. I think that the Top Gear boys, the old ones, Jeremy and, and so on, are really good comic actors. Yeah. They use motoring almost as their stage. Yeah. The other thing I say about Jeremy, I saw him interview somebody and he started a talk and the interviewer added something more and Jeremy shut up. And I thought that guy knows how to interview yeah. because he knew ha that he could say anything any time he liked. But when the talent was talking, he knew to let him go. If he's excited by having a beautiful movie star on or, you know, if it's something like that, you're absolutely right. He'll just shut up and he'll listen to what they've got to say because he is, as I say, you know, he's a journalist and he knows how to get the best out of people. And I think that James May and, and Hammond, they have great chemistry between the three of them. You actually worked with Chris Evans on radio for a while, the guy who <laughs> took over from Jeremy. I was doing the breakfast show with a guy throughout the UK on Virgin Radio and then Chris said I'll come to Virgin Radio he was doing a Saturday morning show and Richard Branson kept saying uh, you should come and do a show more than just one show a week he said I'll do breakfast but you'll have to find somewhere else to put Jono and Russ who we, we were doing the breakfast show so one Christmas when I was in Australia we got taken off the breakfast show and I got like it I got a fax through the fax machine saying just oh, let yeah. you know that um, nothing personal but you and Russ are coming off breakfast you'll be doing drive time in the afternoon because Richard wants uh, Chris Evans to to do the breakfast shows you know we actually get on okay now but there was this sort of um, you know it's the very much the media wars in and it was the weird thing was we we're working for the same radio station how did you feel when he failed at Top Gear? I couldn't possibly say. I, I did almost feel like saying I told you so because people were saying, now Chris Evans is a bit of an old sparring partner of yours and he's mellowed a lot over the years, but he got fired from, from, uh, from Virgin Radio because he used to take Fridays off to do another TV show called Thank God It's Friday. And then some Thursdays he wouldn't turn up because he was getting ready for pre-production, but basically going to the pub all day. Getting your license wasn't an immediate drive, your driving license? No. When I got my license, I can't even remember what year it was. I think I like, like the idea of having a car and being able to drive. I made the mistake of buying a, a, a red Fiat 124 Sports. I think it was a 1969 Fiat you couldn't turn the heater off. Supposedly, it was owned by a little old lady in Canberra. The gearbox went, and I had driving lessons. My first driving lessons was the Eastern Suburbs Driving School. I'd never forget it. It was a rainy Thursday night. 
And I said, oh, I don't know if I can do my first driving lesson. Nighttime, it's raining and it's, you know, it was just really bleak and horrible winter time. And he said, look, you're never always going to be able to drive in good weather. You might as well start with your first lesson in the wet and the rain. John, thanks again. My pleasure, David. And uh, anytime you need any, any uh, you know, rent a gob, I'm your man. I might get you to review a car. How's that? Oh, God, that'd be funny. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> All right, mate. Thanks again. All right. See ya. And that was an edited version of a lovely chat with media personality Jonathan Coleman. The full interview that covers more of his driving experience, the cars he owns and what it's like to teach his children to drive can be heard on the internet at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Quite a number of years ago, I was driving through Melbourne with a friend and we came upon the new Porsche KN, which of course was Porsche's first entry into the SUV market. My friend didn't recognise what brand of car it was when I said it was a Porsche. He said, why? Well, now we know why. SUV sales are booming, no more so than with Porsche, but more of that later. In our interview in this program with Jonathan Coleman, he mentioned that his family's major car is a Lexus RX350, a large-size SUV. So they're coming here and everywhere. Let's talk about that with our expert from practicalmotoring.com.au, Paul Morell. G'day, Paul. Is uh, the number of SUVs on the market a surprise to you? It's not a surprise, David, but it's a, a bit of a shock. Um, it is just it's, it's a, it's a steamroller that does not want to seem to stop. Um, people are besotted with SUVs, particularly large SUVs, and they're buying them to the exclusion of station wagons. They're buying them to the exclusion of luxury sedans. They are just, they're just multiplying like cockroaches in a, in a pest controller's commercial. The interesting thing, you mentioned station wagons. Yeah, my uh, son was looking for a station wagon, but not a, you know, not going to buy a, an expensive one. There's not a lot in the lower pricings, but of course, from Europe, in the luxury brands, there's heaps of them. But even then, you take Audi. Their A3 is their biggest selling car. Okay, that includes some station wagons. The next biggest three Audis are the Q3, the Q7, and the Q5. All SUV vehicles. Yeah. BMW, the 3 Series is their biggest one, followed by three SUV vehicles, the X5, the X1, and the X3. Even, you know, things like Ford, their Ranger Ute is huge, absolutely huge compared to everything else. But then the Territory, old, you know, design as it is, even that is there. Uh, it comes in second. Mm. Land Rover way outsells Jaguar, Land Rover that. And, and the exception is Mercedes. That's true, um, but Porsche, 79% of Porsche sold in Australia so far this year are SUVs. Who would ever have thought that you'd see badges on SUVs like the Porsche badge, the Maserati badge, the Jaguar badge? It's just, it's yes. just, it's unstoppable, as I said before. Uh, the simple fact is that um, all the major manufacturers, particularly the luxury manufacturers, have recognised that that's a growing niche in the market. And they've they've leapt in there, both feet and and cash books in hand. They're uh, they're just determined to grab big 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 chunks of that market. And they are. Well, it's even more than a, a station wagon. A station wagon can be very practical. And as I say, there's not a lot of them in the below fifty thousand dollar era in Australia, which is I think is quite a shame, really. You get the same situation that I do, where people come to you quite often and ask for advice. What should I buy? What do I need? And of course. 
the first thing you say is, okay, how are you going to use the vehicle? What's your most common usage? Will it be, you know, commuting? Will it be taking the kids to school? Whatever. And quite often you'll say, well, obviously your requirements are it'll be urban commuting, whatever. You probably should have a smallish, smallish station wagon or a hatchback. No, no, no. You can guarantee that that person asking the question will turn up, you know, in a week's time driving some large SUV. It's a very strange um, emotive decision that we are we're losing the battle on quite simply. Yeah, and of course a hatchback can have a rather stumpy tail on it without a lot of boot area, whereas a good old station wagon can be much more practical, much more usable sorts of space, which is exactly what my son wants it for. Mm. Yes, it's it's a difficult one. Station wagons, um, I mean, they're no longer the you know um, Griswold vacation cars. They're, um, <laughs> they're they're still quite attractive. In fact, in some cases, I've said this before, I find that the the estate version or the station wagon version of some cars is actually more attractive than the sedan. There's no logic in it whatsoever. I mean, when you talk about practical SUVs, let's say, okay, you're determined to get an SUV. I mean, everyone should be out there buying Subarus. I'll I'll take the commission later, but. I mean, the Subaru is, is a nice compromise between a, a hulking, lumbering vehicle designed very much for off-road and a vehicle that's designed to work in the urban environment. Paul, lovely to talk to you. Thank you once again for your time. And you can hear a longer interview with Paul on our website at www.drivenmedia.com.au where we talk more about the general approach to SUVs and more specifically, we road test the Lexus RX350. You're listening to Overdrive. And finally for the program, let's talk some unusual quirky stories about motoring and transport. On the line, I have Errol Smith and Brian Smith. Gentlemen, good day. G'day, David. G'day, David. Now, let me start with saying that Nissan is going to and is employing an anthropologist to influence their autonomous vehicle design. They have a a lady there who I believe, uh, Melissa Sefkin, who is in the Nissan Research Centre in Silicon Valley. Now, we know anthropology is to do the study of humanity. Is a gentleman a good idea? Is this a trend in the motor industry you would see happening and indeed encourage? Well, David, it's quite an interesting idea that, um, you know, you, you need to understand how vehicles are used by humans in order to make sure that as autonomous vehicles that they will they, they will behave in a way that we're expecting them to behave. So, so Sefkin talks about um, taking a fresh look at how humans interact with a deeply and profoundly cultural object, the automobile. And so one of the challenges, for example, is in America they have four-way stop signs. So the idea is they need to be able to understand how humans judge giveaways and and the question of who goes first. However, I've got to say, I think um, if Nissan's using an anthropologist and I was their competitor, I'd immediately get uh, Sir David Attenborough to assist me with how animals behave. And so then I'd be able to market (laughs) my autonomous vehicle as, you know, this is programmed like a cheetah or a lion or a tiger, dangerous, unpredictable. The great maybe, white shark version, you know. Maybe, so, maybe, well, we, the, maybe we could have uh, different driving modes and yes. you can select if you want. You ah, know. yes. Predator or prey. Yeah. <laughs> Bird animal. Dangerous loner. I'd love this sort of programming. So the idea is that, you know, you could, you might be driving your sort of human style vehicle and, you know, through comes a great white shark style vehicle and you're just getting out of the way. The thing is that they also talk about 
anthropology and ethnography, which is really the understanding of cultures. And I'm not judging cultures as good or as bad. I'm just saying they're different. Might we need to be developing cars now away from global markets and with autonomy, building them towards the more cultural differences Mm. within Mm. particular Mm. countries? The level of aggressiveness could be determined by the culture in which the car is driving. Oh, yeah, yeah. It might depend on who wins the American election. Oh, look, yeah, exactly, David. And we've talked before about how autonomous vehicles would need to accommodate different road rules, even within jurisdictions in Australia. But I can imagine, you know, you would want your autonomous vehicle to behave differently as you approached Mount Panorama in Bathurst, (laughs) based on the human condition up there, compared with, say, Potts Point or something like that. The other thing is, of course, that we're now involving other modes of transport much more. I was talking to an engineer the other day who said that engineers in the past in certain government organisations were indifferent to pedestrians. In fact, one engineer many years ago defined a pedestrian as a driver looking for their car. (laughs) (laughs) And when they came and put four pedestrian crossings at an intersection, someone said, why four? And he said, one for each pedestrian. (laughs) (laughs) but that interaction with pedestrians of course becomes and bike riders and things becomes much more both cultural as well as practical you do want a a practical interaction with the pedestrians and bike riders because you don't want to hit them yes and preferably you don't want them hitting you i'd like to see uh the rules in in interaction between uh, transit say buses and uh, autonomous vehicles. So, you know, if, if you ever go sailing or, or travelling on the water, there are uh, rules of the ocean that, that say that a vessel under sail, you know, must be given way to by a vessel under power and that ferries, for example, have right away over many other vessels. And I think I'd, I'd like to say, see the same sort of rules where the system itself means that buses are given priority or taxis or even vehicles laden with more people. So you have a single lane of traffic but a bit of parking space on the side, a breakdown lane. If a bus comes at the end of the queue, the automatic system could sort of gradually, wave-like, move cars out of the way to the left to let the bus take priority. So it doesn't need its own lane but it might get priority anyway. This could be in conflict with the idea of an anthropologically programmed vehicle, though, I suppose, because different levels of aggression and uh, rule tolerance and things like that would need to be programmed in. Oh, okay. Well, you might pull over, but you can beat the horn and show the Mm. finger. Scofflaw sort of setting. Mm. What I'd like to know is, uh, would would a, um, say, a large seven-seater four-wheel drive, a lot of ground clearance and lots of headlights and spotlights all over it, would the autonomous version of one of those behave differently to the autonomous version of a, a little, you know, two-seater city car? I oh, see. So you mean they might have the character of the, of the previous driver? You'd need to have a rural button in the car, right, that you select <laughs> rural with a, an extra one that it's a ute muster. <laughs> so you're immediately burning up. Yeah, or well, summon that. Summon that mode. Some of that's mode, yeah. Mm. Mm. And will the autonomous version of a, of a luxury European car fail to indicate like its owner would? <laughs> well, do you need indicators on autonomous vehicles? You probably don't. Now, instead of a blinker, it'd have a hand come out the side and wave the other car away <laughs> <laughs> with a glove on it. 
car manufacturers have not necessarily been good at identifying what the customer really wants. They misjudged the SUV market, for example. It boomed much better. They built a Morris Marina. Clearly, they don't understand what people <laughs> want. This is human flaw, isn't it? The, the you know, flawed humanity kind of model. Well, it's the same with mobile phones, or any phones, in fact. I think, who was it that very early development of them said, I can envisage where every uh, town in America will have a phone. Mm. <laughs> you know, we will have 10, you know, the world needs 10 computers or something. We've just been appallingly bad at understanding how people will adapt it. I think this is important because a lot of transport planners believe in this ideal world of control and planning mm. where rules and everything set up and, and it will work as they want them to work. As intended, yeah. Yeah, whereas other things will come evolve. For example, how will the insurance industry adapt to these things? Indeed. It's, it's, um, obviously, the, the crash rate goes down and hopefully uh, then the cost of crashes reduces and therefore risk goes down for insurance companies. But there are some complicated issues around what an autonomous vehicle should do in certain circumstances where there might have to be a crash. What they're doing with insurance, so we're looking at is the possibility is if I get a very bad disease or with a terminal disease where I would spend six months to live and four months of those would be in an expensive hospital with tubes all over me, would I prefer to say, look, I'll live for two months without medication and give me a $10,000 bonus. I'll go and travel the world and go and spend it and give it to the kids or have a big party or whatever and not spend my last four months of my life in agony. So what's the automotive equivalent, David? There is an issue. A cheaper rate might give you lower... Lower survivability, you mean. Higher risk. Mm. When you get into a car, and it'll be a, perhaps a rent-a-car more than necessarily a car you own, will you tick high coverage, low coverage? Mm. It may determine how the car behaves in, a, in an incident, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if if uh, there's going to be a crash, maybe your insurance level is the used by the car to determine whether you survive or not. And you can hear Brian, Errol and I cover this subject in some more detail, plus discuss a fashion designer who is making an artistic statement by making clothes out of the upholstery seat fabric from buses. Iceland paints its roads to save the lives of the incredible birds, the Arctic Terns, and Northern Territory open speed limits put all road users at risk, according to some doctors' groups. Go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, David Campbell, Brian Smith, Paul Morell, Jonathan Coleman and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer versions of the segments from this program by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>